0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Lauren Williams, is a biophysicist, biochemist, astrobiologist, and professor in the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. His research passions include the structural basis for macromolecular reactions from the role of nucleic acids as targets of chemotherapeutics to the ancestral biochemistry of the ribosome during the origin of life. He is currently director of the NASA-funded Center for the Origin of Life, acronym COOL, at Georgia Tech and a co-lead of the Prebiotic Chemistry and Early Earth Environment Consortium. In 2021, he was elected fellow of the International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life. Since 2008, Williams' research group has been focusing on the ribosome across the tree of life, constructing models of ancestral ribosomes by combining biophysical chemistry, molecular biology, and bioinformatics. So, Lauren, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So first of all Lauren it's clear from watching your videos online that you're both fascinated and excited by your field of study what makes it so compelling for you
1: Yeah you're you're right I am very excited I actually love what I do I love thinking about the ribosome I guess part of it is that I mean I love science in general I feel very fortunate to be a scientist but also uh, the ribosome you feel like you're looking back at time. When I look at the right, you know, if you've looked recently at these images from the Webb Telescope, where NASA can look back many billions of years in time, they're so exciting to see those images. When I look at the ribosome, I have the same sense, you know, you're looking back 4 billion years and you can, you can see that the oldest roots of biology have been there frozen for us. It, it's It is exciting. <laughs>
0: It seems that we humans have a, a, a identification with the enormity of it all. <laughs> you know, it's like we're part of this. We're part of this incredible, not just tapestry, but just incredible, uh, vast accrual of development. You know, it's just amazing.
1: That's right. And the ribosome, number one, it's, it's extremely old. It goes really back to the origin of life. But also the, the ribosome really demonstrates the unity of life everything, bacterium and archaean, a lion, an elephant, a butterfly and us our ribosomes, except for on the surface. They're the same. And they, you cannot believe how similar they are. That's one of the things we, we work on in our lives. Like how similar are the ribosomes across the tree of life? It's incredible.
0: Okay, so just to clarify the term origin of life, uh, I think we're talking about how, how inorganic or prebiotic matter somehow crosses the threshold into organic, and then how organic molecules develop the capacity for self-sustaining evolution of variety and complexity, and especially self-replication. Know, is, is that a fair summary of what, it, what the field means?
1: That's a fair summary. It is, it is a very difficult thing to summarize because number one, we don't really have a universally accepted definition of life. So then to say what is the origin of life, it becomes a little bit different. A lot of times when people talk about the origin of life, their definition of life is kind of built into their uh, understanding of the origin of life. So it's, it's very difficult for us to actually think about the origin of life because we really don't know what life is. We can't. We don't really have an objective definition of
0: it. We, we ascribe certain characteristics mean self-replication being a big one right reproduction and um, c- capacity for uh, for growth and things like that
1: yes um, actually I don't uh, I don't actually think that's a very good definition that uh, to me I would define the life my definition of life is something that does translation which is anything that has a ribosome is alive where other people okay so well, I have a different definition of life, which gives me good. So that's the thing. People use replication. Re, people focus on
0: replication when they talk about biology, but I kind of don't agree with that approach. I, I mean, isn't it something that uh, you sort of, you know it when you see it, and then there's a gray area like viruses?
1: Yes, you know, yes. There's a famous uh, definition of pornography, which is that you you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. I think it's a Supreme Court justice that comes from, I can't remember his name, but biology is the same way yes that's exactly right in fact if you look at darwin and the debates there it was they talked about something called the appearance of design so darwin was able to explain the appearance of design without a designer that was one of the things he did for us and so that appearance of design is kind of the definition of life i mean it's one of the definitions of life it's very difficult to come up with the definition of life i actually don't think life exists you you, wait wait, we say that again (laughs) I I don't think I mean I think life we know life is just chemistry so life is a special case of chemistry that's but it's not none of the rules of chemistry or the rules of thermodynamics are broken in life it's really not a distinct
0: yeah, so th- that's really interesting to, that you're sort of demoting life to being just a special case of chemistry. <laughs> uh, but but I, I kind of understand. And, and, you know, in our email exchanges, you, you imply that you weren't a philosopher, but maybe you partly you are. Because uh, it raises questions about you know, the older ideas about life having a, a life force in it. And, of course, as a scientist, I'm sure you don't subscribe to that.
1: No, I didn't, I do not. I guess I'll just say it like this. Like, when we look at biology... Our view of the world and of of the natural world is poisoned by biology because we live in a sea of biology, right? You cannot escape biology. It's around us everywhere. You know, you leave your milk out overnight and something grows in it. I mean, our world is just so dominated by biology. And this this is biology after 4 billion years, which makes it very difficult for us to think about What was the earth like before biology and what was the transition to biology? Because what people do, this is like the standard thing in the origin of life. They will look at biology and they say, this is my favorite thing in biology, replication. Say, therefore, replication, the the invention of replication is the origin of life. Or there's some people who say my favorite thing in biology are membranes and compartments. So the establishment of membranes and compartments was the origin of life. So people take what they like in biology and they push that back and they say that thing is the origin of life. I think those I think that will always fail you. I don't think the origin of life had very much to do with modern biology.
0: So in a way you're saying that you a biologist is studying a kind of an arbitrary construct.
1: Yeah, well it's I wouldn't say it's arbitrary because I mean look at look at the world around us it dominates I mean biology if you look at our planet you know we take it for granted but there's things growing in glaciers there's things growing in hot springs I mean there's things growing miles down underground if you if you think about what biology has done to our planet and how pervasive it is it is impossible for us to think about our planet without right. that.
0: including our atmosphere right I and mean, we wouldn't be able to breathe
1: exactly everything yeah our minerals the mineral earth is different from the moon because biology created molecular oxygen and created all these minerals that you don't have on the moon. So our planet is so dominated by biology that it's very difficult to think about what it was
0: like before biology. Okay, so let's talk about a related distinction then, which is the distinction between inorganic and organic. Maybe there's a, a bit more agreement on that, a little, a little clearer.
1: Oh, no, that's that's. there's not going to be agreement on that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay, in chemistry, yeah, okay, you have to separate things. You know, in chemistry, inorganic means like metals, and organic means carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. So there's that chemical definition, but that's, I'm sure, not what you mean. You're talking about sort of what is biology and what is not. Is that is that what, what you mean by that?
0: Well, I guess I was under the assumption that inorganic molecules are relatively simple by comparison, and organic molecules are these enormous carbon-based, totally different scale of molecules, especially when you start making proteins.
1: Your bones are inorganic. You know, I mean, there's inorganic materials. There's minerals. Your teeth are essentially inorganic, and they're very complicated. So, no, that is not a distinction we tend to use. So, yeah, this is what I tell you, it's very difficult to, to say that this is life and that is not life because all of those distinctions, you can always find them in both living and nonliving materials or what we call biotic and abiotic materials. So that's why I told, it's almost impossible to to define life.
0: All right, let me, let me give one more try. <laughs> I mean, it seems that even though maybe the dividing line is not so clear, that uh, if a molecule is enormously large, there's a good chance that it's organic. So, for instance, proteins, I understand, are made up of 300 to 1,000 amino acids, and, and the ribosomes, which we'll talk about in a minute, have uh, a molecular weight of a million. I mean, just incredible sizes of molecules that I think if you just all of the things being equal, if you found a molecule that was that large, you'd say, hey, that's, that's probably organic.
1: Okay, well, I can tell you it is snowing polymers on Titan. You know, there's chemistry going on in the atmosphere of Titan, uh, we, and the very large molecules. In fact, Titan, there's dunes of organic material on the surface of Titan, and very large polymers. So, no, that doesn't work. But uh, maybe I can maybe I can help you a little bit here. Okay, okay please. <laughs> one of I think one of the things that defines biology, which separates it from what we call abiotic processes is polymers, yes, but also polymers of defined sequence. This is something you do not see outside of biology. So when we talk about the sequence of DNA, you know, CGAT, et cetera, the sequence of RNA, these are large polymers of very specific sequence that you do not see outside of the
0: biological world. And when you say specific sequence, do you mean that there's some uniqueness to it, this variety and uniqueness?
1: Yes. So, um, you could think about, for example, DNA. It's a very, very long molecule and it's made from four elements that link together, C, G, A, and T. And the sequence of those in the polymer is what you inherit from your parents.
0: Yeah, th- those are the genes.
1: Those are the genes. And those genes are, are polymers with very specific sequences. You have about 3 billion nucleotides or base pairs in your DNA, and the sequence is very, very specific. And that has been tuned by evolution over billions of years.
0: Right. And specific to the individual.
1: Yes. Or specific to the organism. It depends on specific to, yeah, at some level they're specific. Right. And that's something you do not see in the abiotic, as far as, you know, that that was what we could call in NASA, we could call that a biosignature. If we see that on some other planet, Doesn't matter what the polymer is. If we see long polymers of specific sequences, we would say, oh, there's got to be something alive here.
0: All right, so so the first step in the origin of life, which I I feel like I'm going to be obligated to put quote marks around it. (laughs) Uh, Not the one studied in your lab involves the spontaneous formation of organic molecules, such as amino acids, right? The building blocks of proteins from elements that are presumed to have been present in the early Earth four to five billion years ago things like water, methane, ammonia. Can you tell us about the 1952 experiment by Stanley Miller, supervised by Harold Urey? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, that involved a test tube simulation of the early Earth environment, very famous experiment. Uh, I don't know if it's been replicated.
1: Yes, absolutely. has have been replicated many times. And, and with a lot of variation. Uh, in fact, at Georgia Tech, my friend Nick Hudd has Done this experiment, uh, you know, changing the conditions and things like this. Yeah. So this was a, truly a groundbreaking experiment where very simple molecules—ammonia, water, methane—I think hydrogen gas—that's it. Essentially, you heat it gently, and you—they have what's called simulated lightning, which is called the spark discharge, and that produced amino acids. I think. Uh, Miller detected, I think, maybe eight amino acids. I can't remember, but people have gone back and looked at some of his old experiments with modern analytical techniques, and there's a lot of amino acids. In fact, there's there's even non-biological amino acids. There's all kinds of amino acids in there. There's all kinds of very interesting molecules that are related to biology that just pop out of that experiment. So that's kind of a hint to us about the origin of life. Some of the molecules of biology are Older than biology. In fact, one of the ways to say that is you have molecules in you that are that are older than biology. That are at least you know four billion years old.
0: In a way, it's a test to see whether life can occur spontaneously, you know, without having to invoke divine intervention. Which isn't to say you know for sure there wasn't divine intervention, but we're not going to get into that. But uh, the idea of the being that chemical processes on their own, with in the right conditions lead to greater complexity.
1: Yes. Yeah. But I have to tell you that one of the misleading things about that experiment, I mean, that experiment is very important. And now, well, let me just first say this, that now it has been shown, in fact, these are some of the experiments we do at Georgia Tech, that you can take those molecules, and we have simulated early earth conditions, and you can, you can polymerize them, you can link them together and you can go beyond amino acids and you can make what are called polypeptides, which are on the way to proteins. Uh, and th- that is simple chemistry, right? That's the thing, is you can make some of the molecules that are very similar to biological molecules from very simple chemistry. And that's, that's, I think, really exciting and tells us a lot. But there's a caveat there, is that this works for amino acids and for making polypeptides when you look at the other molecules of life, for example, RNA and DNA, doesn't work. Does not work. We cannot understand where these molecules came from.
0: So that's a kind of a missing link to borrow from uh, archeology. span
1: It's a huge missing link. There's various ways of thinking about this. You know, RNA, we don't know where RNA came from. So there's a couple possibilities. Number one, that there was chemistry going on on the ancient earth that we just don't know what it was, which is possible. Another possibility is that RNA really what did not come from the abiotic earth and that RNA is a product of evolution and that it doesn't really represent the chemistry of the ancient earth. So there's, we really don't know much about RNA.
0: So it's a really deep mystery.
1: It is a, it is a deep mystery. Okay. So this is the way science works in general. Like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail to you. So geologists think that minerals were very important in the formation of RNA. Many geologists do. And organic chemists think that there was very complex organic chemistry going on in the atmosphere and in bodies of water. It sort of depends on your perspective of where people are working on trying to figure out where RNA comes from. I would say it's been going on for 50 years now. And to me, I'd say it's kind of stalled out. There's other people who don't agree with me, but there's people working very hard, some friends of mine, on trying to figure out abiotic processes to produce RNA. I don't think it's ever going to work because I don't think it happened.
0: And and isn't there a, a conjecture that it could have come from outer space, like from a comet or something like that?
1: Yeah, but that doesn't, no, I mean, that doesn't solve the problem. I mean, if it's some abiotic chemistry, it doesn't matter. We don't care where it happened.
0: You still have to explain how it happened to wherever it came from.
1: Exactly. So that we don't worry too much about that. Probably it did not, but it doesn't actually matter to us, actually.
0: The, the next step, we were just talking about the Stanley Miller uh, experiment, uh, producing organic molecules from inorganic ones in early, the early life of the Earth. And the next step would be the bridge somehow between organic molecules and self-replicating ones. And, and as, as you mentioned, that's we're really not sure how that happened, you know, without the benefit of, especially without the benefit of DNA to, to uh, direct the process, but also, you know, RNA, how do you get from, from amino acids to RNA? But there was some kind of early breakthrough, at least in creating self-replicating RNA with Saul Spiegelman, 1967. And could you yes. tell us about that experiment? Saul
1: Spiegelman, very interesting man. He was studying phages, which are kind of virus-like particles that infect bacteria, and he isolated an enzyme from these phages that could replicate RNA. That was incredibly uh, beautiful um, experiments he did, and he could use that. So he had an enzyme that could produce RNA and that, therefore, he could do evolutionary experiments, very simple, with just using the RNA and that enzyme. So he would, would take the RNA that encoded the enzyme, then replicate it, and then take it out, replicate it again, and put it under various kinds of what we call selective pressure. So you can do, essentially, you can do evolution outside. You don't need you don't need biology to do evolution. So salcio Spiegelman is probably the first person to figure out how to really do evolution, what we call in vitro evolution. It's now very, very common, but he figured out. So
0: in other words, chemical evolution rather than biological evolution? Well,
1: I don't know. You have to be careful because it is totally dependent on biological molecules. So it is using mm-hmm. RNA and it is using a polymerase. All of these come from biology. It's not sort of starting from the beginning. It's sort of taking the end. I I don't call it chemical evolution. It's a, and I don't think he did either. We call it in vitro evolution. That kind of gets around that argument. It's like evolution outside of a cell.
0: So let me just clarify. So there's still a a missing link in there somehow? The way it's described, it sounds almost like you're going from amino acids to... RNA, but there's a, there's a step missing there.
1: Okay. Number one is you purify this enzyme and you have it. The system is not making the enzyme.
0: It's kind of, kind of like biosphere Two, where they had to add some oxygen.
1: Exactly. Right. So what this experiment has evolved to now, is sort of gone beyond that. So this is the way you can do it. You can, you can synthesize, let's say a random sequence of RNA, and then you select for some property, maybe it could be binding to something or catalysis, or you just, you select. And so basically you throw away 90% and you take away the 10% that does the thing you want. And it doesn't do it very well. Maybe it just binds to some molecule or something. And then you can use enzymes that you have purified from biological systems. And you, you can amplify that RNA and maybe even mutagenize it and go around and do it again. And you can do it again and you can go around in circles and you can evolve RNA to do, do things. There's People make money off this. Evolution is not uh, some theory. I mean, it's actually, a, it's an experimental process that you can do. People make RNAs that have all kinds of properties and they're used as drugs, they're used for all kinds of purposes.
0: Well, including the recent COVID uh, vaccine, no? Isn't that an RNA vaccine?
1: That's an RNA vaccine, but it was not selected so that is not an in vitro selected RNA, but um, I'm sure these, these these companies are using uh, in vitro selection to do all sorts of things.
0: And just to clarify for any listener who doesn't have a chemistry background, uh, RNA is is like a single strand of DNA. essentially it's just it's a single helix.
1: Okay, I'll explain it like this. there These are two closely related molecules, RNA and DNA, and chemically they the difference is very subtle. It's really just kind of one oxygen got stuck in there. That's, you know, there's some other things, but that's the main difference. But that difference makes RNA very different from DNA. DNA is kind of a boring molecule that forms long double helices that are really designed to store information. RNA folds, it's it's actually not single-stranded. It folds into complex structures, like the ribosome, tRNA, even RNA folds, it folds. It's not just sitting there, like a noodle. Um, it folds on itself, but it has very different properties from DNA, very different properties. This is one of the things that biology can do for you. It's the, the chemical difference between RNA and DNA is so small, and yet the properties of RNA and DNA are so different. It's, it's actually mind-boggling, if you think about it.
0: And, and I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I'm thinking about the uh, young children's game of magnets, balls, and you mix structures out of them. And then depending on what attracts to what, you get all these weird shapes out of it.
1: That's not a bad, um, that's, a, that's a pretty good analogy, especially for the way that RNA folds. In fact, RNA, the biological polymers in general, you have a very hard time just studying them as if they are not folded. They just, everything folds. It wraps up on itself. If you try to make any random piece of RNA, it's going to fold into something. And the same thing for protein. These molecules are just, we call them sort of masters of assembly. They just assemble in fantastical ways. And it's just built into the molecule.
0: A particular molecule will fold the same way each time. If it has the same exact elements in the same exact order, right? Well, we used to think that in fact, there's, there's the name for that. Now we know it's actually
1: not true. Like for example, proteins in your body, you know, they're made and they fold, but then they can fold into something else. And that's where a lot of what, what are called aggregation disease, amyloids, these are refolded proteins that fold into something else and cause all kinds of neurological problems. So no, it, now it turns out it's really dependent on things.
0: So it dependent on the environment as well. It depends on the environment, words? yes. So they're intended to be folded a certain way to fulfill its function, but then sometimes something goes wrong that it meets uh, some condition outside of itself and then folds in, a, in the wrong way.
1: Yeah, okay, this is how to say it exactly, is that if you have a protein all by itself, imagine it was the only thing in the universe, meaning it's at infinite dilution, it will fold in one way. But if you put it in a cell where things are very concentrated and there's a lot of other proteins around, It will fold into something else.
0: So in a way you could say it it, it gets distracted.
1: (laughs) That's actually a great way to say it. It gets distracted. And if you think about a cell, there's a lot of distractions. There are so many distractions in a
0: cell. Well, let's talk about just one more experiment uh, before we get to yours. And that's the uh, the ones by Tracy Lincoln and Gerald Joyce at the Scripps Research uh, Institute um, about the evolution of forms of RNA from competing varieties. Uh, resulting in a Darwinian-style perpetual self-replication, and an early pre-DNA basis for heritability, perhaps.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, Jerry Joyce and his students have done amazing, and this is really based on the thing I talked about, which is in vitro selection. So they select for a molecule that can make itself. So that's and so they have done in vitro selection, and they have selected for RNAs that can make that can make themselves. And this is a really, there's you know, there's basically kind of an industry of people doing in vitro selection. Jerry Joyce is one of the best, and he has focused, um, you know, on this, on the ability of RNA to make copies of itself. And he has some molecules that, you know, you have to be a little careful. They can't, they can do it, but not very well. In a cell, RNA never makes RNA. RNA is made by proteins. That's. As far as bi- we know in biology now, RNA is made very, very efficiently by proteins.
0: And directed by DNA, no?
1: Yes. But the proteins make the RNA. But what the idea of the RNA world is that RNA was once, there was no protein and RNA made copies of itself. So this is a sort of a test of a prediction of the RNA world model that RNA should be able to replicate itself even though in in real biology now there's no examples we can't find any evidence in phylogeny for this process
0: it's a conjecture that before dna-based life forms there was somehow at least chemical evolution of rna that maybe somehow led to dna
1: right not just dna but before protein before protein is really the the way to think about it because in a modern cell most catalysis is done by protein but RNA can do catalysis. It's not as good at it as protein, but the idea was that in this model, I mean, this is a model, and you have to be careful. It's not, we don't know it, that it's correct, but in this model, there was no protein, and RNA replicated itself.
0: Right, and protein, of course, is, is kind of the building blocks of, of our bodies and for all sorts of tasks, whether it's defense, transport, communication, storage, enzyme structure. I've read that proteins are thought of as machines in a sense. They use energy and perform functions.
1: Proteins can do work. I mean, they do. When I'm I'm flexing my arm, that's proteins doing work. Yeah. Proteins are amazing.
0: Right. So they're really the kind of the most important building block of our bodies. I mean, there's also fats and other things, but without proteins we would be in big trouble, right? We wouldn't exist. That's safe to say Yes. So in your research, you're exploring the ribosome as a kind of living molecular fossil, I think you've described it. Um, It's akin to examining the accretion of limbs and branches of a tree. And I I love that video that you uh, uh, pointed out to me on your website, where you talk about that. And and there's a kind of just awe, I think, in your voice as you're describing it.
1: Yeah, it's true. And we we don't know why this is, but the ribosome is the oldest thing in biology, for some reason, this is one of the ways to say it, is that evolution really cannot touch the ribosome. We don't have any evidence, and so the ribosome is fixed. That's not exactly true, because on the surface, there's things that happen, especially in eukaryotes, but the core of the ribosome and is fixed.
0: So, in other words, the trunk the trunk of the tree and its main limbs yes. are fixed.
1: Uh, I, I would say, you know, you drill into that core of the tree, the oldest part of the tree, and it is fixed in time. And there's the thing we don't really understand is that why are there not other things in biology that are like this? There's a lot of enzymatic systems that are very important. There's DNA replication, right? DNA polymerases from archaea this one branch of the tree of life and DNA polymerases from bacteria. are
0: Right now archaea being the most f- f- uh, primitive one-celled organism. No, right? no, it's a tie between archaea and bacteria. They both. No, have- no, just describing what archaea are. Archaea
1: and bacteria came out of what's called the last universal common ancestor.
0: Right. And archaea, the, just the, by definition, are the very s- simple one-celled organisms like amoeba and things like that? Uh,
1: much simpler than amoeba. They are, yes, they're they they're one-celled organisms and they are very simple, but then so are bacteria. Most of biology is microbial. I mean, we, we are fascinated with ourselves and with tigers and lions and big things. But really, if you look at most of the organisms that have lived, or you look over the length, you know, the billions of years of the earth, or if you just look at the genetic diversity of biology and all the things that have happened, biology is mostly microbes. It is It is not us, it is microbes. And there's two kinds of microbes, bacteria and archaea. And they both, go back to the last universal common ancestor, but they both have the same ribosome. I mean, the one thing you can say about bacteria and archaea is their ribosomes are the same. In fact, everything in biology has the same ribosome. It has not changed for about 3.8 billion years.
0: Right, but just to clarify though, because I remember in your lecture, you talked about how Uh you can't really tell from, from DNA how complex an organism is, that the lungfish has 100 times more DNA than we do. Uh, plants, many plants do as well, but you can tell the difference by the size of the ribosome, that the humans have the biggest ribosome. So so obviously there's a lot more branches and leaves. Maybe the the trunks and limbs are the same. I just wanted to clarify that.
1: The surface of the ribosome in eukaryotes, which humans, we are eukaryotes, is elaborated compared to bacteria and archaea. And then if you look at mammals, birds and mammals, it's kind of all kinds of things are happening. Yeah, if you look at humans and chimpanzees, the ribosome is undergoing explosive growth right now. Our ribosomes are growing. It's kind of funny. I'll tell you the absolute rate. Its Relative rate is very fast. It's about a nucleotide, I think per, it's about three nucleotides per million years, But you might not say that's very fast. If you think about the billions of years of life on Earth, it's actually incredibly fast. It's explosive. So uh, our ribosomes, you know, in a couple million years, our our descendants are going to have larger ribosomes than we do. But that's not true for microbes. Microbe ribosomes haven't changed in three and a half billion years, and they're not going anywhere. It's something about mammals, especially, warm blood, birds and mammals, our ribosomes are growing.
0: So, you've really taken on a geological uh, time perspective, it sounds like. Yeah.
1: When you study the ribosome, you are talking about things changing on a geological scale. We, you know, most biology is really human biology. If you look at the NIH, and, and the vast majority of people studying biology are studying human biology. You know, humans are not, we've only been here for a blink of an eye. So, the kind of work I'm, I'm doing, is really, it's, it's kind of a fundamentally different way of looking at
0: yeah, let's back up just a little bit and talk more about what the ribosome is. I, I've heard it described as tiny molecular robots, which make proteins, and that there are up to 10 million such robots or ribosomes in every cell. And that it makes up, uh, what, like 25% of the mass of a bacterial cell? I don't know what it is in humans, but it's, it's a huge, huge, not just hugely important, but hugely uh, s- substantial component.
1: Ribosomes are the machines that make protein. So you can think about RNA as a little computer tape and that gets read in by the ribosome, and then the ribosome writes out protein. So this is how what we call information gets changed into function. So information would be the RNA. So, you know, sometimes people say the ribosome is a transducer or a compiler, a computer compiler, where you start with the code and you turn it into something functional. So that's that's what the ribosome does. It, it takes RNA and it, converts it into something totally different, but under the control of the sequence of the RNA. So it's a really, it's an incredibly elaborate and sophisticated and very difficult to understand process, how this works, why it's worked and where it came from. The evolution of it is very difficult to understand, but really exciting to try to think about.
0: I came across a nice analogy that uh, I, I expanded slightly. Uh, the DNA is the recipe for proteins, and ribosomes are the enormous chef team who make the proteins. DNA is the recipe book, a very large and well protected reference book that cannot leave the library, meaning the nucleus. mRNA or the messenger RNA, which is smaller than DNA, um, memorizes and transcribes the recipe and brings it out to the uh, to the chef team. And Actually, the DNA creates the messenger along with the message, sort of like the same thing. And once outside the library in in the cytoplasm, it reads the recipe to the ribosomes, to the chef team that ultimately translates the recipe by assembling, translating sequences of amino acids, one word or codon at a time into proteins, gigantic chains of molecules that ultimately fold up into distinctive shapes. The transfer RNA is the sous chef who brings and attaches the ingredients to the ribosome and the process stops when... When the recipe comes to the stop codon uh, message, like a screen flashing the end or fini at the end of a movie,
1: that's a great analogy. You can think about it another way, which is that when we think about protein, we say that protein is not an informational molecule, meaning you can't get the information out. Which is kind of like saying you cannot unbake a cake. So things flow in a certain direction from a recipe to the cake, the same is true for biology. So in fact, this is known as the central dogma of biology, which is, you cannot do reverse translation. Reverse translation would mean unbaking the cake and going backwards. Cannot do that.
0: So it's a very good analogy. It it actually goes quite deep. I guess you could say that you're the one who's trying to uh, decipher the recipes.
1: No, we're trying to figure out, like, who built the kitchen? Where, where did the kitchen come from? Where did the cooks come from, I think? Where did this system come from
0: that allows people to, to bake cakes? But you're not looking for the chef necessarily, right? <laughs> no, no. So the ultimate chef. We want to know the parents of the chef.
1: Where, did the, where <laughs> did the chef come from? And where did the kitchen come from? Where did the blender come from?
0: So if you were to put on a kind of more science fiction-y kind of hat, I don't know if you like science fiction or not, but you know, what do you have any hunches or any dreams or guesses or even just musings about it? I do,
1: yeah. I mean, I have, actually I have, um, it's kind of dangerous, but I have a pretty detailed sort of, we would call it a model, but let's say a scenario that this thing could and in fact, we're doing experiments in our lab to try to recapitulate certain steps in this. And, and this, is, this is one of the reasons why I think your definition of life is very important, which is I think the ribosome is older than replication. The ribosome comes from a different kind of process. It does not come from biology.
0: It comes from something older than biology. Well, does it come from a chemical evolutionary process then?
1: Yes, but what is chemical evolution? That's what we don't really understand. What do we, mean? because in, in evolution, in biology, you have to have DNA and RNA and protein, right? Evolution requires that. So when you talk about chemical evolution, you have to go back to say, I don't have those things yet. How do I do evolution without DNA and RNA and protein?
0: Yeah, it's definitely an al- alternative process. It's not the same at all. Yeah.
1: But you know, if you look carefully in biology, you realize this is something that has recently inspired us. There's a lot of evolution in biology that does not require replication. For example, amyloids, which are these diseases I talked about. They are protein aggregates that replicate and can be inherited and can be transferred, and there's no replication involved. you know, you can have inheritance and you can have sort of continuum of chemical processes without replication. This is why when earlier I said biology kind of poisons you a little bit because you think that you have to have replication to have evolution. But we don't think that's actually true.
0: So is it so even without uh, replication, you can have changes that get recorded and then added to?
1: Exactly. So what you yes, you articulated that in a really good way.
0: So, I can't help thinking that this is so unbelievably complex that it would just be easy to just sort of scream in in, in, um, frustration. (laughs) You know, but obviously you haven't done that. You've said, ah, complexity. You take it as a challenge.
1: If you don't like complexity, you need to stay away from biology. I don't care if you're trying to cure cancer or trying to understand the origin of life. The the complexity of of a human cell is... It's just beyond comprehension. And so it's just a thing we deal with and we learn to embrace it, actually.
0: Yeah, so I guess if you're a real scientist, you don't um, have too much danger of being a total reductionist because, you know, as soon as you reduce something to general principles, something uh, unfolds. And wait a second, that's just a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, you
1: know, we're attracted to reductionism because we can understand it, but it's, it's generally gonna fail you at some point. So the way I look at biology, there's, there's a phenomenon called emergence, which is like when you put two things together, it's like oneone 1, one doesn't equal two. And we see this all over biology. For example, liquid water cannot be understood from the properties of a single water molecule.
0: You know, that's, that's an example of emergence. Yeah, another example would be for music that you can't understand a chord from two separate notes, you have to hear them together.
1: And you can't understand a city from just understanding a family, right I mean there's when things come together, they just become more and more complex. and biology is layered emergence, so many layers deep that that's why reductionism just kind of doesn't tend to be too productive, although we're always attracted to it, but it, it's not going to work very well.
0: Other, other thoughts about where things are moving and, and ideas that you have about uh, what you wish you could discover?
1: I'll just give you a little bit of sort of almost my philosophy of biology and the origin of life, sort of by analogy, and which is one of the things, if you look at something like the Amazon forest, or, you know, a real ecosystem, you will see that it's very complicated. You know, you have ants that take care of aphids the aphids have microbes in their guts, the aphids take care of the microbes, you know, that, and they're living on plants and the plants are producing oxygen, that the ants and the, you know, there's this intense network of interactions, you know, symbiotic interactions, you know, parasitic interactions, is that biological systems are intensely complex and networked. And then you look at what humans like. We like pig farms in Iowa right where you take you take one thing and you basically you're you're saying I don't want biology I want a, I want one thing living here and I want to control it and it's very difficult right you got to use antibiotics and it's so difficult
0: to fight biology the so called factory farming you know just a conveyor belt
1: yeah you say why does factory farming not it's not going to work very well because you're trying to maintain You're trying to fight biology. You're trying to break those networks. You are trying to say, I want all the pigs to be alike. I don't want them to get bacterial infections. I don't want them to be biological. You know, and biology is always going to, it's going to beat you in the end. It's just a matter of how long you can delay it. So if you look at a cell, you can sort of see the same thing, except it's molecules like RNA makes protein in the ribosome, protein makes RNA in polymerases, all these molecules, we look at the molecules in the same way that they are symbionts. That they, Just like in the Amazon jungle, you have all this intense network between organisms. In a cell, you have this intense networks between molecules. And we think this really goes back to the origin of life. The origin of life was never simple. This is one of I have to say, I don't like the RNA world model because the RNA world model is essentially equivalent to the pig farm. It's saying that at one point things were very simple and one one molecule did everything, and I I just can't accept that. That's not how chemistry works. That's not how biology works. To me, that is not a very good model.
0: Well, this is a bit of a tangent in a way, but um, you know the way you talk about the interdependence of in biology and, and even in chemistry uh, juxtaposed against, let's say factory farming. I mean, it seems like um, industrial civilization has that attitude, not just about raising animals, but also about just exploiting the environment entirely. And, and we're paying the price now.
1: Yeah. Well, well, one of the things, if you study, like I tend to study things over very long time scales, and if you take a long, a long view of things, you can see our model, is not sustainable, you know. I mean, you might say, yeah, the economy might be good next year, it might be this, but if you look over a longer timescale, you know, we're trying to fight biology. I mean, just the way we use antibiotics in agriculture, you know, you are never in the long term going to win. You, microbes will come after us and you can delay them maybe with antibiotics, but evolution is unstoppable. And that's the same thing with monocultures and with agriculture. You know, We think we're separate from the natural world and that we can make the rules,
0: but... And that we can make uh, nature serve us, you know, sort of as as if it's just raw material for us. We are part of nature. We cannot escape our connection to nature. And then, you know, we haven't mentioned climate change, but it's intimately related to biology. I mean, after all, what are fossil fuels? Where do they come from? And we're, we're taking millions and millions of years of, of um, degraded um, biological matter that's turned into fossil fuels. Exactly. And putting putting it back into the atmosphere.
1: Yes, uh, fossil fuels are a good example. One of the ways we say it is, carbon has been sequestered over hundreds of millions of years, and we are releasing that carbon over you know a couple hundred years. And uh, <laughs> this is like. I mean,
0: wow. Yeah, so it's not, it's not that we're doing something different than what would happen anyway, but we're doing it so much faster. It's too fast for the, in, the whole system to accommodate uh, right. easily. I mean, of course, of course, the system will accommodate it. It'll accommodate yeah. by raising the temperature and melting the ice caps.
1: Right. <laughs> One of the ways to say, that, you know, there are periods um, during Earth history where there has been rapid change. And generally, the consequence of rapid change is uh, mass extinction. You know, I mean, asteroids, and we are basically sort of have a synthetic way of accomplishing rapid change. It's just, you know, you, we don't want to destabilize uh, our our biosphere. It's just like a terrible, terrible idea.
0: So, do you see your your work and the knowledge that you derive from it as as translatable into a kind of warning for, for us in a sense. You know, it's, I can't say that,
1: but for me, it's a, if, you know, if you take the, if you take a long view of biology, number one, you realize that everything goes extinct, essentially. the first approximation and that, and that we have been here for a blink of an eye and that we think we own this planet and that we, uh, and this planet is for us. You know, you can, just, you can just see none of that is true. We are actually, this is a way to think about it, I think. We are temporary visitors on a microbial planet. And after we're gone, the microbes will still be here. We think we can control microbes with antibiotics and things like that. And uh, we simply cannot. We can, we can manipulate them over a very short time period, but it's their planet.
0: They own it. You know, one of my previous interviews was with our, a local uh, uh, astronomer, Chris Churchill, about the search for intelligent life in the universe. And w- one of the theories for why we're having trouble finding it is it could be that in most cases, intelligent life only lasts so long. And even if it was some mil- millions of years, that's a blip when, it, when you're talking about astronomical time. And then you have to have the two civilizations close enough together and coexistent in order to detect each other. I can
1: tell you that, just looking at the long history of the earth, um, we are, what, what's happening here is just not sustainable, and uh, and if, then if you look over, like people think, oh, maybe, maybe we'll last for a thousand years, you know, all of that is a blink of an eye, on you know, in the context of the history of the earth, and so, you know, we, we haven't proven that intelligent life is sustainable, we certainly have not.
0: So it seems like we need some kind of technique, scientific or otherwise, that opens up more eyes to what's going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, we would hope. That's, that's outside of my, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's really kind of, it's upsetting. I mean, I get upset by it, but I, you know, I just kind of dig down into my gopher hole and keep going down there.
0: I mean, do you, do you have children that you worry about their descendants?
1: I, do, I have a son and yes, I do worry. Yes, absolutely. In fact, yeah we're a lot about I, I can't imagine you know especially with the climate and things happening it's just hard for me to imagine um what 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 we're doing you know what, what my son's life is going to be like it's, you know i guess mm-hmm. you know all of us many of us here mm-hmm. are in america we're gonna you know we're richer i suppose and we're going to be kind of immune to a lot of the short-term things that happen
0: right for, for a while,
1: while. that uh, also is an illusion when you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, it, the Roman Empire fell and a lot of people didn't even notice for a hundred years, right? It kind of took a while for everything to... You know.
0: That wasn't the whole planet, though.
1: Right. It wasn't the whole planet, but still, it, it's a, it takes a long time. You know, we could already be past the tipping point
0: and not know it. I guess there's uh, desperation measures that could be taken with... Um sending up particulates into the atmosphere or creating gigantic mirrors or, you know, things like that. Maybe. If this was Star Trek, you just would need one, one starship to, you know, do its thing, right? It's, it's kind
1: of like a dystopian sci-fi movie where, you know, you know the asteroid is coming and it's going to, well, there's just a recent movie on this, and like people just won't believe you and, you know, it's kind of like, this really, this is happening?
0: Yeah, so I would imagine it's easier just to focus on, on your work and just, yeah. you know, let that stay in the background, I guess.
1: <laughs> you know, I, actually, I have friends in my neighborhood who are not scientists, you know, and uh, I meet with them and we talk about science. I give them tours of my lab. And actually about five years ago, I was talking to them about, you know, infectious diseases. And I said, you know, our, our way of life is not sustainable. And, uh, you know, if you look at, travel, population density. you know Effectively, we are in a bloom. Human, human, Humans are in a bloom, and blooms in biology always end in the same way. I mean, they just, there's only one way they end, and that is with, with massive die-off. And I, I said, you guys, I don't know when this is happening, but this is going to happen. It might be in five years. It might be in 50 years. It might be in 500 years. I have no idea, but there's only one way a bloom ends, and we cannot escape that ending if we continue our bloom. And then, Then COVID came and they were like, they told me, they said, you predicted COVID. And I said, actually, no, COVID is not civilization ending. I said, just wait. I said, COVID is, is a hint of how unstable our system is, but it's, it's not yet, it's, the end will be much worse than that.
0: If anything, it's just a very minor warning shot. It's
1: exactly, It, it shows you that our system is unstable. And it, it, this thing cannot be controlled, right? Like China, they cut down travel, they do all this stuff, but you really, you cannot control it.
0: Isn't it a little bit weird to, to be living in the generation that first realizes how uh, possible it is to um, to face annihilation?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's kind of ironic. You know, we're the richest uh, civilization probably in the history of the earth. You know, here living in America per capita income. And yet... We can see the end. I mean,
0: it's it's ironic. I, irony is
1: dead, I guess. So you can't say it's ironic.
0: <laughs> well, do you have any uh, any last thoughts for our interview? Uh, maybe talking about what's up ne- what's up, what's up next for you.
1: I, well, let me just say this. I have, I have one more thought: is that the origin of life? You know, a lot of times people say, you know, why would you study something that's not answerable? You know, why? I think that it is answerable. These are answerable questions. If you, we have ways of understanding, we have ways of recapitulating, you know, it's an experimentally based thing. And in the end, we will understand the origin of life. It's like the Grand Canyon. You know, we don't, we haven't watched the Grand Canyon form. You know, we don't, we don't have a movie of the Grand Canyon being eroded by the Colorado River, but we have a very, very good understanding of the formation of the Grand Canyon. And you know, that's, I think, a good way of thinking about the origin of life. We don't, you know, we weren't there. We don't have, but the records are there. And ultimately, we will understand the origin of life and we'll understand where we came from.
0: Or at least understand it at a, at a deeper and deeper level. And there's something something comforting about the idea that, that you'll never run out of levels entirely. There's always more to understand.
1: No, you will never, that's true. It's always moving into an onion and you never actually get to the... Um, an infinite onion. <laughs> but the idea that we can't really go deep into this onion, and I'll just give you an example. How do molecules evolve? We don't know. But it's, a, it's an answerable question, right? I mean, if, if, if the ancient Earth was able to invent protein and RNA, I want to understand the process that did that, and I want to capture it and redirect it, right? And so, And there's no reason why we can't do that. So I, I think I think ultimately the origin of life will be, will be something that at some level we will understand at a pretty deep level. You're right; we will never totally understand it, but it's not an unanswerable. There's nothing inherently unanswerable about it. Unanswerable about it in comparison to other. It's like saying we'll never really understand cancer. We will never understand cancer truly, but we keep digging and digging, and we're going closer and closer and closer.
0: Yeah, there's something marvelous and and wonderful about the process.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I think that we went out of time. So thank you so much, uh, Lauren Williams, a biophysicist, biochemist, astrobiologist, and professor in the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Georgia Tech, whose research passions include the chemistry of the ribosome during the origin of life. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In.
1: Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having
0: me. I really enjoyed it. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.